If you have your Bibles with you this morning, and I hope that you do, would you please take them and turn with me once again to the book of Revelation and to chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. While you're making your way there, I am sure that many of you probably, like I did, encountered a number of children and as well as quite a few adults this last week who dressed up in in various costumes. Um, I saw folks dressed up as Bible characters. I saw folks dressed up as superheroes and cartoon characters and even cult and pop culture icons. But I also saw folks dressed up in some of the macabre outfits, uh, people who dress like ghosts and zombies and skeletons and things of that nature. And, and it was in light of what I knew I would be preaching about this morning that I couldn't help but find irony in how they were dressed. You see, these were living, breathing people who dressed themselves to look as though they were dead. But ironically, in the passage that we're going to read and study this morning, a letter written specifically to a church named Sardis in the area of Asia Minor toward the end of the first century A.D., we're going to see that really the opposite was the effect there. You see, according to Jesus, this church, which, which from all outward appearances looked as though it were alive and looked as though it were vibrant and, 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 and living, it was, it was actually dead. In fact, it was, as I've entitled today's sermon, the church of the living dead. And what that tells us is that things are not always as they appear. Nevertheless, as we noted from our study of last week from the letter to the church in Thyatira, Jesus has eyes of blazing fire. And the one who is able to see all things actually peers past that which is visible strictly to what is for us is the outside. And he sees to the heart of things. He's able to see with perfect clarity that which is going on on the inside. He knows what's real. He knows what's facade. He knows, as the writer of Hebrews puts it in Hebrews 4, verse 12 and 13, that the Lord is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart, and there is no creature hidden from His sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. Well, in this fifth letter of this series of sermons that we've been looking at, of the letters written by our Lord to the churches, the Lord Jesus calls into account what amounts to a church that is languishing in its apathy, in its lethargy. It's taking a yawning and a very sleepy approach to their faith. And such an approach endangered the very existence of the church. And it therefore stands as a very stark example for us here at Ivy Creek of what we must not do and what we must not become. Brothers and sisters, The picture that the Lord Jesus paints for us in these six short verses here at the beginning of Revelation 3 really, I believe, is a more terrifying picture than the most scariest of horror films that Hollywood could ever produce. And it clearly tells us that as believers, we must not allow ourselves and our commitment to Christ to become sluggish and to become tired or else we will be in danger of becoming that church of the living dead. Let's hear the word of God this morning. Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, 
These things says he who has seven spirits, has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. The thing that we've learned in each of these letters thus far that we've been studying through is that they're all fairly consistent in their format. In fact, that's why I've tried to keep I've tried to keep my outlines as consistent as I can with each of them beginning with a letter C and kind of falling in order so that if you ever go back and and look at them you'll be able to see the continuity that exists between each of these letters, but each letter is also unique in its own set of of what it discusses and how it goes about uh, what Jesus does, and that's forced me to be a little um, a, a little flexible with with how I've organized our outlines not only in its message, but also in its content. But there's one constant is it, that Jesus always begins. He always begins by addressing the angel of a church in a specific area. And so notice the first point that I've given to you there. The church that we look at this morning is the church in Sardis. The city of Sardis was a, a, an ancient city, but it was, a very, it was a city that had a very storied history. In the 6th century B.C., it had been the capital city of the country of Lydia, which had been ruled by the king Croesus. Um, he was renowned for his wealth. In fact, Croesus is, is credited for having minted the first true gold coins to be used uh, in society. Uh, in Greek and Persian cultures, his name became synonymous for a person who was wealthy and had lots of, of money. The city of Sardis itself, was a very wealthy city. It was situated uh, there in, in what is the modern-day country of Turkey and Asia Minor at that time. Uh, and, and it was situated where several important trade routes from east to west and north and south all came through the city of Sardis. And as a result, money flowed into the city. In fact, literally money flowed into it because there was a river that flowed through the middle of the city and it is said that even golden flakes were found within that river. But by the time that this letter was written at the end of the first century A.D., the ancient city of Sardis had seen its better days and, and it had started to decline. While it was still wealthy, the, the city had become soft. In, in fact, William Barclay notes this, that the great characteristic of Sardis was that even on pagan lips, Sardis was a name of contempt. It, its people were notoriously loose-living they were notoriously pleasure and luxury seeking. Sardis was a city of decadence. And so it is to this church that is situated in the middle of this city 
that the Lord writes. And even in what Jesus reveals about himself, we begin to get an indication of the situation that the church in Sardis was facing. Notice on your outline that the Lord follows his introduction to the church in Sardis with a description of himself. That's the second point on your outline. And you'll notice something about his character there. Jesus Christ writes this. He says, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Therefore, what we, we learn about Christ's character here is that Jesus is the powerful possessor. And he possesses both the seven spirits and the seven stars. Now, how are we to understand what it is that Jesus is saying here about himself? Well, to begin with, we should understand that by the seven spirits, Jesus is not referring to some heavenly angelic entourage of spirits that go with him wherever he goes. Rather, what he's referring to is the complete and perfect work of the Holy Spirit. You see... The, the fullness of the Spirit is often described in, in the seven workings of the Spirit. The prophet Isaiah writes about this. He talks about the sevenfold fullness of the Holy Spirit in Isaiah 11, verse 2. He says, The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, and the Spirit of counsel and might, and the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Furthermore, we know from Jesus' own words in John chapter 6 that it is the Spirit that gives life. And so Jesus is telling the church in Sardis, he says, look, I'm the one who possesses the life-giving, omniscient, omnipotent power of God in my hands. But that's not all. Jesus also possesses the seven stars, which according to the description that we read in Revelation chapter 1, where he's describing the seven stars there, it has reference to the seven churches. And so the Lord is the powerful possessor of both the spirit which gives life and the churches who absolutely need that life in order to live. As Chuck Swindoll has written, Jesus emphasizes that he holds in his hands the power of life for the churches through the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, that image of Jesus takes on an even more significant even more significance to us when we hear what he says to the church in Sardis. We've been used to hearing at this point a word of affirmation or a word of commendation of the church uh, in the previous letters, but no such word of commendation appears here in this, this letter to the church in Sardis. Rather, we get the third point you'll notice there is a work of confrontation. We get a word of confrontation. He says, I know your works. You have a name that you are alive but you are dead. The ESV translates it this way. He says, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Jesus confronts the church in Sardis with the fact that their reputation did not match up with reality. Things looked one way from the outside, but upon a closer examination, they were completely different on the inside. Swindoll, he says that the church in Sardis was a morgue with a steeple on top. Vance Havner, he says that everything they had was in the show window. They didn't have anything in stock. To put it in modern terms, we might describe the church this way. The church in Sardis would have had a vivid presence on the world wide web. Man, it would have had compelling and, and captivating preaching. It likely had a vibrant music program. 
children and youth programs were, were keeping everybody busy. And they had a budget that would have made other churches jealous. After all, as Jesus says, they had a name. They had a reputation in Asia Minor among the other churches. The other churches probably thought Sardis was the one that had it going on. And evidently at one time their reputation matched the reality. But not any longer. Now the church was dead. Danny Aiken calls them a zombie church. Live on the outside dead on the inside. What would have caused such a terrible demise? Well, what's interesting is that Jesus doesn't give us any specifics. That's, this is what we want. We want him to tell us specifically what happened. But we have to read between the lines of what Jesus says to really get to the kernel of what's taking place here. He, he gives specifics in other places. In Ephesus, he talks about the fact that they left their first love. In, in both Pergamos and, and Thyatira, he talks about the fact that they had begun to accept moral compromise, and that they had allowed false teaching to take place. But notice Jesus doesn't identify any specific threat that the church in Sardis faced. There's no Nicolaitans. There's no Jezebels. He doesn't even speak anything specifically about persecution. Now, I don't think that that means that there, means that there wasn't any challenges surely Sardis had to deal with a lot of the same cultural issues that the other churches in Asia Minor had to deal with, specifically from the Roman government and from, from the, the, the worship of other deities. Certainly there were cultural issues that they faced, that other churches faced, but the fact that they had an appearance on the outside, they had a reputation that did not match up with reality on the inside indicates to us that the primary challenge that this church faced was not external. Rather, it was internal. That becomes more clear, I believe, when we see how Jesus continues to speak to them. In fact, he gives them a list of commands designed to reverse the situation that they were facing. Commands issued for the purpose of correction. That's your fourth point on your outline. It's correction. And notice the commands. The first command that Jesus gives for the purpose of correction, it was a command to wake up. My brother earlier said, what are you hitting your alarm clock and not doing? Jesus said, that's what you've been doing. You've been hitting your alarm clock. You've continued to sleep. You need to wake up. The Greek word used here is, is a word that talks about returning to vigilance. It talks about awaking from slumber. It, it, it means to become alert. Now, what historians and, and scholars find interesting about this command specifically is that it was very apropos in light of a couple of military blunders in the city of Sardis that they had been guilty of in the past. The city was situated atop a very sheer cliff. And it was guarded by very high walls on top of that. And so when the Persian king Cyrus, he came to invade the city in the 6th century B.C. And his army was ultimately able to, to scale those cliffs and those walls and enter that city in the middle of the night. And they engaged that city because there were no soldiers placed there to guard it. And they went in and they took over the city. And what's interesting is that some nearly 200 years later, the exact same thing happened again when Antiochus attacked and conquered that overconfident city of Sardis because they didn't set a watch 
In his letter to this church situated in a city with such an abysmal history, Jesus warns them not to repeat the same mistake in the church. He wake up, he says, return to your vigilance. It's almost as if he's down and he's shaking a person that's just about to breathe his last and going, come on, stay with me, stay with me. Here's where we get our first clue that it's apathy and it's lethargy and it's indifference that's the main issue facing this church. We must be warned that a lack of vigilance will ultimately cause a church to drift off into the slumber of cultural chaos where it will eventually lose its effectiveness and its usefulness and it'll die which is why Jesus continues with his next command. The second one there you'll see is to strengthen. Strengthen. Specifically, he says, strengthen what remains and is about to die. Jesus indicates that there is a flickering ember of life left in this church. And the word translated strengthen is is translated in other parts of the New Testament, meaning to nurture or to help along or to bring back. And what that tells us is that Jesus is giving this church hope. He's saying that, look, things are bad, but as bad as they are, all hope is not lost yet. Notice notice what else Jesus says. He says, I have found your works, I have not found your works perfect or complete in the sight of God. Once, Once again, we are faced with the fact that from all outward appearances, things looked good. But what, when the Lord, with his eyes of of penetration is able to see them as they really are. He says, look, I'm not, I'm not judging you based upon your set of statements and standards. Here we see the Lord looking for something that he does not find in the church. He doesn't find faithfulness. He doesn't find devotion. He doesn't find commitment. The church at Sardis had likely started off with a bang and they had ran their way strong, but apathy... And laziness and indifference had had taken them off the course. They'd sort of put it in neutral. And they'd just sort of gone where the currents would take them. Jesus commands them to wake up. And he commands them to strengthen that which remains. And then also, he says, remember. Remember. Remember those things which they had received and heard. I am convinced that one of the primary reasons that Christians become apathetic and why they fall away from a vibrant faith in Christ is why they no longer find joy, why they no longer find value in serving Him, why they embrace practices in our culture that the Scriptures are clearly opposed to. The reason they do that is because they stop, they regularly stop remembering. Do you realize that that's easy to do? That you can... You can regularly stop remembering. Most of the time we think I need to regularly remember something. But we can regularly stop remembering things. And that typically leads to spiritual lethargy. Here's here's how we can turn the tide and begin to remember. With our Bibles open, we can begin to remind ourselves of, of, of just what the Bible says about sin and how sin requires judgment. And we we remind ourselves that because of sin, 
death and eternal punishment is what we deserve. But then we begin to remind ourselves that just as the Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 and following, that because of the great love which, with which God has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, He has made us alive together with Christ and that by grace we have been saved and we've been raised up and we've been seated with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Those are the kinds of things that we need to continually remind ourselves of because when we lose sight of that, we begin to drift into the cultural chaos that thinks that, you know what, everything's fine. It doesn't really matter what I do. It doesn't really matter what I believe. It's just okay. I'm just going along to get along. No, it required the blood of Christ to save me from my sins. A bloody cross must always be in the forefront of our mind to remind us of what Jesus has done. We must remind ourselves not only of his death, but we remind ourselves of his empty tomb. That not only did he die for our sins, but he rose again victorious over the grave so that you and I might one day live victoriously in his presence. Apart from his resurrection, we have no hope. The Apostle Paul says we are among all people the most pitiable. Not only are we to remember, but we are also to keep it. That's the fourth. We are to keep it. The New King James translates this fourth command to hold fast. The ESV, on the other hand, translates it to keep it. It refers to the word that God has given us and that it's a word that needs to be obeyed. Swindoll writes this, he says, According to Scripture, remembering is more than just thinking. It involves doing. In other words, our Lord commands us to live obedient lives. Keeping God's word will, will keep us from drifting into the sea of spiritual fog and forgetfulness. As Achan has written, he says, you can never drift into anything worthwhile. Therefore, the Lord commands us to keep the gospel, to hold on to it, to never forget it, to never let it go. We have to remain fixed to what we have received and heard when we put our faith in Jesus. And then notice the last corrective command. One which we have noted in Jesus' other letters is the command to repent. You know, I keep coming back in all these letters. I keep coming back trying, how can I, how can I illustrate repentance again? Because I have I've taken them to as many different ways of trying to illustrate repentance. It means stopping and turning around and going another direction. Let me throw a different one on you. This is not anything new, but it's a change of mind that results in a change of attitude. That's what repentance is. You start looking at things from a different perspective. God wakes you up by His divine providence and in His love for you, He helps you to understand things from a perspective that you had either long lost, forgotten, or whatever, and then suddenly you're able to turn around and start going in a different direction. You're able to think about things differently and do things differently. That's what repentance is all about. And these believers in Sardis, they had become lazy. They had become indolent. They had become sleepy. And, and, and Jesus says, wake up. Strengthen that which remains. Remember. Remember that gospel message that you heard and received and then keep it, obey it. If these believers were going to do these things, if this church was going to live and not die completely, it would only happen if these believers repented of their apathy. They had to get serious about what God was revealing to them. 
They couldn't continue just to play around with spiritual things and, and delaying their obedience to God's commands. They didn't have the luxury of sitting around and just talking about starting back what they knew they needed to start back doing. The time to repent was now because the Lord tells them in very clear terms, if you don't, there was a serious consequence coming your way. That's the fifth point that I want you to know. It's a consequence. Jesus tells them in verse 3, Therefore, if you will not watch, if you're not going to wake up, if you're not going to do what I tell you to do, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. In other places in Scripture, when Jesus uses this same similar phraseology, he's describing his second coming. It will come like a thief in the night. And it refers to him coming back in his glory and his power. But here, here, however, he uses that analogy of a thief sneaking in unexpectedly into a person's house as a way of describing his unexpected judgment against the church. Once again, these words would have had a really profound meaning for the church in Sardis in light of those two previous invasions by those foreign armies where the city of Sardis had been overthrown because these attackers had come at night and they had scaled those walls when there was no sentry posted and the city lay asleep and it was unguarded. In the early days of World War II, it was said that Winston Churchill cautioned Britain and he said this, next to cowardice and treachery, overconfidence leading to neglect and slothfulness is the worst of wartime crimes. The church in Sardis was evidently guilty of those very things. And the Lord Jesus warned them of his unexpected judgment if they did not repent of their apathy. Now, thus far in this letter, everything has been negative, particularly from the perspective that what Jesus has exposed is, is particularly and radically different from how things appeared on the outside. The church outwardly appeared alive and vibrant, but the Lord had exposed the fact that inwardly it was dead. And that which was not completely dead was on the verge of dying because of neglect and apathy. But then verse 4, we do get a word of commendation. That's the sixth point you'll see there. We get a word of commendation to the faithful remnant that existed there. Notice what Jesus says. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. John Stott, he writes, Within the worldly congregation, a godly remnant was left. A few Christians who were still loyal in heart and mind to Jesus and who therefore formed a godly remnant. Danny Aiken says that these were the ones who bucked the trends and they swam against the current that was engulfing the members of their community. Oh, that we need those that will buck the trends and swim against the current in our communities. I want you to know such a stand would likely cost these folks dearly, not only from those outside the church, but from those inside the church. You see, those outside the church are going to fight it. But sometimes it happens from the inside of the church because the world, because they're so impacted by the world and, and, and to see someone who's bucking the trends and living their life for the Lord, sometimes those commitments and, and, and their constant testimony stands as an indictment against those who know that they are not doing that. 
And so Jesus recognized that, and so he encourages this faithful remnant by reminding them of what was to come. He's, he says, look, what you're going to endure by being my follower, it will come to you. It will be gloriously worth it in the ages to come. You see, they will walk with white clothing that Jesus provides for them. And that white robes that he provides is symbolic of their justification and of the holiness of life. And the fact that they will walk with Jesus indicates that they belong to Jesus. Now, it's in light of that revelation of the fact that there is a faithful remnant left there in that lethargic, sleepy, dead church that we hear the familiar call. And notice that that's the last point on your outline. It's a call, once again, as we have heard before, a call to conquer and comprehend. A call to conquer and comprehend. The call to conquer comes in verse 5. Jesus speaks about overcoming. And to overcome literally means to conquer. It means to be victorious. It's the word from which Nike comes from. That means victor, to be victorious. But the call continues down in verse 6 when Jesus concludes with the same sentence that he has concluded with before. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So conquering and comprehending overcoming and hearing. Those are important and necessary actions for these believers. And quite truthfully, they are, they're necessary for all believers. And then Jesus attaches three promises. Work with them quickly. I want you to go through them. He promises, number one, those who conquer and comprehend, number one, you're going to receive white robes. It's the same as what he just described. Robes that, that were white represented purity, not the purity of their own. But as Revelation 7 verse 14 says, they are robes that have been washed white in the blood of the Lamb. They are the ones that Jesus gives His purity to because of the sacrifice that He has made. That's the first promise. The second promise is that their name will be written in permanent ink. He talks about a scroll or a book. And throughout the, throughout the Bible, we see that, that there's always something described as a book or a scroll somewhere, an annal where the names are written down of those who belong to God. And Jesus says, I will never blot their name out. It's written in permanent ink. It will never go away. Jesus and it said to his disciples in Luke chapter 10, verse 20, he says, don't rejoice in that the spirits are subject to you. Rather, here's what you ought to rejoice in. Rejoice in the fact that your names are written in heaven. And Jesus says, I will not only give them my purity, my holiness, my righteousness. I will never let their names be erased. And then finally, instead of being erased, instead of being blocked out, he says in the third promise, he says, in fact, I will confess their name before Jesus. In Luke chapter 12, verse 8, he says, Whoever confesses me before men, him the Son of Man will also confess before the angels of God. You see what that is? That's, that's Jesus vouching for you. That's Jesus saying, You don't touch him, he's mine. He belongs to me. I gave my life for him. I sacrificed my blood for him. I have given him my righteousness. He belongs to me. He walks with me. He's mine. That's what that means. But brothers and sisters, we must not stop there because Jesus also tells his disciples, but whoever does not confess me before men, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. Many have seized upon that and said that's really the issue that was facing the church in Sardis. Their apathy, their indifference, their lethargy, their sleepy approach to their faith 
had made Jesus less than worthy to be confessed before the world in which they lived. They were fine just to go along with however things were. And as a result, you don't read about much persecution. You don't read about much problems. They looked good. But Jesus says, you're dead. That leads me to my sermon in a sentence this morning, which is this. Because of apathy, a church that may appear alive and healthy is in danger of dying and must respond to Christ's call to return to faithfulness and life. Let me ask you, do you need to respond to that call today? Have you been just sort of going through the motions but not really possessing the living power of the Holy Spirit? Have you gotten to a place in your life where you're taking for granted the blessings and the gifts of God? Have you gotten to a place where God's grace no longer really seems all that amazing to you? If so, then our Lord's message to the church in Sardis is really a message to you as well. It is a message that calls you to wake up. It calls you to strengthen that which remains and to remember the gospel message that you have heard and have received and then to hold on to it and to obey it and to repent of your sin and apathy and your lethargy. God, God's calling to you is a gracious calling. It is a merciful calling. He still loved the church in Sardis. He loved it enough to write a message to it, to call it to repentance because there was something there that was still had the ability to be changed. And I want you to know he still loves you and he still desires for you to return to him. So wherever you are spiritually, you can say this, Lord, start with me. Do your work in me. Wake me up. Stir within me your love so that I can serve you and so that I can walk with you as you desire for me to walk with you so that the world will know that I belong to you. As one has put it, may God wake us up and deliver us from the church of the living dead so that we can once again become the church of the living Christ. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God and it is for the people of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your love and your mercy. And we thank you for your love for us that you demonstrated in sending your son Jesus to die on the cross for us while we were yet sinners. And that there is nothing good in us that could ever make our robes white. Our robe will only be white because it has been washed in the blood of Christ. And so we stand before you as people who are unashamed to proclaim you as our Savior and our Lord. Father, I pray when you see us that you will look past what just is simply what we profess on the outside. We would move past what is just simply visible to outward eyes, but that you, by your Holy Spirit, will penetrate deep to our hearts and see us for who we truly are. Bring conviction into our lives where we have hypocritically proclaimed one thing outwardly and lived something else inwardly. And allow your Spirit to do its work within us. Help us to wake up. Help us to do the work of remembering. Help us to strengthen that which remains. Father, help us to live in obedience to you. May you be given all the glory and all the honor for you alone are worthy of it. This I pray 
in Christ's name. Amen.